Welcome to the Find Your Form podcast. I'm your host, Jake Wells. My guest today is a Colorado-based documentary photographer and filmmaker. He's an adventure cyclist, and he's the director-producer of my film, Unknown Country. Please welcome Justin Baylog. All right, man. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Totally. Cool, man. What have you been up to? Like, recent? Well, like, yeah. Pretty recent? Um, I've been working on projects, a lot of projects uh, right now are just kind of stacking up, so that's good. So t- um, what, give us some, um, just a, some quick rundown of what you do. Like, what, what do you mean projects? Oh, you, projects for me? Projects, tell us so what, uh, work-life projects for me are um, what I call micrometries. It's a word I trademarked. So kind of narrative films, short narrative films, because I'm just fascinated with story. So I make short narrative films uh, about people. Um, so I have a lot of micrometries stacked up in the queue right now. Um, that's what I do. And then um, right now I'm just trying to get fit, Jake. Mm-hmm. Are I'm, you? You're on the bike and... No, I wouldn't say like... like. So in my head, like I kind of go through this in my brain. I actually just was talking to a friend about this. Is everything like... Everything's kind of in seasons right now. You know, it's something mm-hmm. I've... Because I like... You, I don't know if you knew me when I'm super fit, but I get, I can get pretty fit, you know? Yeah. Um, it's a big part of my life. Yeah. But I don't feel like super fit, super strong right now. Um, but I've kind of gone through this, uh, I try to, I don't know if I justify it or rationalize it in my brain, but I feel like everything kind of has a season. So I feel like my like creative brain is super strong right now, mm-hmm. super fit. And I'm taking pride in that fact. Um, that it's strong, but my FTP, like my, my form is not there. Um, not even close. And also I'm kind of going through this phase in my life where like, you know, I've hung up the, I don't know, do we have cyclists out there probably listening? Yeah, maybe. Right. Um, so I've given up like the data. I used to be just like a data gatherer and I'm not at a data gatherer at all. So I don't have the Strava going. I don't really... Um, even look at numbers whatsoever, time, whatever. I just enjoy riding mm-hmm. and I'm not on the road at all. I'm just kind of doing these like adventure rides. So maybe I am fit and I just don't know. Maybe I'm, that's also a thing going on. Right. Um, so yeah, so I'm just balancing uh, narrative films and trying to stay healthy and stuff like that. I like the idea of fit like creatively. Like, oh really? Yeah. I think that's interesting to think of it that way. I'm like, yeah, right now I'm really flexing this muscle a lot. Right. And so, yeah, my fitness creatively or creatively is, is really high. Totally. That's, that's just an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. It's something I've come up with over the last like three months. Um, and I just feel like, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm doing a lot more productions. Um, so, um, you know, writing scripts, uh, directing, um, filming kind of all those pieces. Um, are all coming together for me right now. And um, I just had, I don't know, maybe it was, maybe it's like the same way rationalizing the casita over the Airstream. Like I'm just justifying yeah. not being super fast on a bike mm-hmm. right now, but I do feel like I'm like creatively fit and that's important to me right now. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting to see that you go through that phase of, or, or this, you know, ebb and flow with on the bike of being super data driven versus being just riding for, you know, mental health or, or what I call like soul rides, yep. you know, like I'm just out here cause I love this bike and, and That's being it. out here yep. and taking a break from the data, um, you know, is kind of, I think it's, I think it's good for everybody, you know, cause we, we do 
tend to cyclists specifically tend to get really into data. You know, like a lot of people that are cyclists and, and are finding success with it are, are pretty type a and, and, and like to, you know, look at numbers and, and see that progress that quantifiable progress. So I think it's, um, it's good to take a break from that, you know, and especially when you've got, you've got personally so many balls in the air, you know, I think so many of us do that you're trying to juggle so many things, you know, so to be able to be okay with just taking a step back from that and, and like, yeah, I'm, I'm focusing on this part of my life right now and I'm still, I'm still riding bikes. Um, it's just, you know, I'm not like necessarily training. I'm just out riding. Yeah. I, I mean, my, my break's been long now. It feels like it's like 18 months since I've really t- gathered any data, yeah. um, which is fine. And then, but also, you, I mean, you've done Leadville, you had yeah. like respectful time. Respect. I mean, not Jake's time, but respectful. Yeah. I mean, I set out a goal. Yeah. Like, so quick, quick history is I, you know, I raced all through college, um, had an injury, um, didn't really focus anything, um, really kind of went off the deep end a little bit. Um, if we're interested in just a form per yeah. se. And then I, you know, set my sights on, you know, just discovering cycling again, went through that process, uh, did the Leadville and my goal was the big buckle nine hours, mm-hmm. um, and set a time of eight fifty three. Perfect was my, my goal time based on like my analysis of people that were similar to me and their Strava data. And I kind of went through a pretty deep oh, 853 dive. 853 was your goal. Wait, 853 uh, was my goal. Yep. yep. And I finished it at 853, 18. Oh really? Yeah, totally. It was crazy. <laughs> so crazy. Um, you know, it was almost, it was, yeah, I don't know if it was one of those like things that I brought something into the universe mm-hmm. by like, I was like, man, I maybe should have said 753, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but if I'm that accurate, but no, I think it was just a pretty realistic goal and nailed it, you know? Good. So, but yeah, so I do, you know, I, I have been fit uh, on the bike and stuff, but like right now it's just, you know, all about kind of creativity. And then the bike right now is a, a space where I develop that creativity. You know, I can just listen to a podcast. I can listen to music. Uh, I can get the endorphins going. Um, yeah. I can go see like snakes migrating because that's common right now on the trails. A lot of yeah. snakes trying to find shelter for the winter. Um, just saving snakes on the trail, all that stuff. So right now it's just a step in towards creativity. But then also a piece of that is because I do so much camera operation, like you kind of have to be a different type of strength, like a literal strength, not yeah. a, like a creative brain strength, but yeah. like a like you know your your core has to be strong. Yeah. So now I'm doing just like morning activators, sure. um, all focused on like being able to operate cameras for long periods of time. So right. it's a different like so for a long time as cyclists we're just like oh you know the upper body's like really just dead weight you know, right. um, but uh, being able to operate cameras you got to be like fairly like kind of strong at least sure. you know. So well, I think that's where fitness going like, on. figuring out how cycling fits into your, as a, as a lifestyle, you know? And I think whenever you step away from defining yourself necessarily as a cyclist and like, well, this is what I'm doing. Everything I'm doing kind of drives toward me being the most efficient cyclist or, or, you know, best of my ability as a cyclist versus cycling is a part of my life and it's going to add to my overall health, well-being and strength, you know? And I think that in that case, yeah, it's, you need to have some whole body strength, you know, it's not necessarily, I mean, we've said this before on, um, different episodes where, you know, you, you look at, a sport like cycling or even running or, you know, really any, any sport that you're, that you're competing in, 
And at some level, your relationship with that sport becomes unhealthy, you know, whenever you become hyper-focused on it, you know? So, um, but yeah, so I think it's always looking for balance, you yeah. know? So, um, when you say micro-mentory, right? Yeah. Like what is, how would you, how do you define that? Like if you're pitching it to someone, yeah. like, Hey, we want to do this project. Um, it's a micro mentry and like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, so micro mentry, um, is just like a coin phrase I came up with for short documentary. Yeah. Like um, how short though? How short, like a micro mentry film would be like three to five minutes, mm-hmm. three to eight minutes, somewhere kind of in that zone. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's the micro side of it. Short documentaries um, are probably like thirty to forty-five minutes, and then you have like you know episodic documentaries, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Um, I guess probably the most I do some episodic micrometries, like one that I did um, last year uh, for um, company Pearl Azumi and also Shimano was we were focusing on like the intersection of cycling and craft and frame builders. So we were just you know I was producing this series about frame builders kind of all around the country. Um, yeah. so those were short kind of five minute films that looked at, um, you know, a, a variety of frame builders, uh, Thomas from horse cycles and breadwinner, uh, out of Oregon. Um, and then Adam Sklar out of, uh, Montana and then Reeb cycles out of, out of Colorado out mm-hmm. there in Lyons. Yeah. So that was kind of a episodic series where we, um, just looked at how various people approach the idea of the bike and building, uh, differently. And so that's, mm what I guess a good example of what a micrometry is in my brain or in my so world. So that was a series you did for them? What's that? That was a series that you yeah, did? Yeah, it was What's called th- Built. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. Right, you've told me about that. Yeah. So I haven't been able to watch any of those yet. Oh, yeah. So that was a that was a fun fun series and just kind of looking at how different people build bikes. Cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I guess when you think of it that way, you know, if you think more like mass production bikes, you know, it's, you've got your process, you've got your molds and your engineers that have helped you figure out the ideal geometry of a bike. And here's the way we want it to be the geometry to align the rider for the ideal performance. And then you have your carbon mold or aluminum, you know, jig and, and you're cranking that stuff out. But when you take that element out of it and it's, it almost becomes more of a voice for the artist, for the builder right totally at that level yeah you know when you're when you're putting out i mean how many how many bikes do those manufacturers put out a year oh i mean so the the scale there would be somebody like adam sklar or thomas um out of horse cycles they're probably doing maybe one one a month you know wow that's kind of what they're building wow um and then you look at like breadwinner they have a little bit more economy of scale because there's three builders there so they'll be Mm -hmm. able to they actually have stand-up meetings uh, in the morning where they kind of come together as a team and talk about, you know, we're going to, um, um, you know, you're going to a little bit of a division of labor, you know, so you have somebody welding, somebody cutting, somebody finishing. Um, so they're able to produce a little bit more. They have, and then like uh, folks like Reeb, maybe they just do just medium builds or mm-hmm. large builds. So they can scale out a little more um, versus the one-off stuff. So you're, having a range there of like 12 to 15 bikes a year, maybe a little bit more to maybe 50 bikes a year. And yeah. then you look at somebody like close to us up there, uh, Moots, yeah. um, they're at like 1200 a year, but they're oh, wow. also, you know, setting jigs. They have, you know, much, they have like 20 people yeah. and they're setting, setting jigs, building frames out in those jigs. 
and then uh, kind of migrating them through the process so they're able to do, again, more more builds. So that's the scale of what I'd consider small frame builders. Right. You know, 50, yeah. or, 50, or, you know, whatever that is, 12 or 15 to 1,200. Yeah. That's always been really interesting to me like, totally. to see what, what these builders are doing and, um, you know, just, I guess, that artistic spin on it that you get to when it's yours and you're creating it and you're building with your hands and um, you're building it for a customer, obviously. So you want their input, but yeah. you know, I'm sure you see that with your projects as well, right? Like when you're doing these projects for different clients, uh, you know, you're providing them what they, what they're asking for as far as content goes. But at the same time, you're putting your personal creativity and artistic spin on it, I assume. Yeah. Uh, creativity is really interesting that way. I think, so a lot of the services I do are like, I'm, I have ideas for stories and then I get them funded. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if the client's really necessarily looking for, for anything in those oh, situations. Right. Um, there are, you know, I'd say probably like 30% of the work I do is we need this story told mm -hmm. and this is the, uh, the way, or the, this is the message maybe we want or why we're telling the story. But then from there, it's kind of, I can do whatever, you know, yeah. I, I want. That's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's it is just doing justice to the story is the most important thing. Yeah. So I, I kind of let the story decide in a sense. Sure. What, what it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that was the thing whenever you and I were working on the unknown country project was, you know, we sat down and, and kind of came up with a overreaching plan of, you know, I think early on I was like, you know, this has to be, this project has to be bigger than just a story about me. Right. You know what I mean? And, and so I think you and I sat down or maybe we we're on our way to Moab or whatever. And we talked about that and, um, you know, so that's where we kind of laid out the, the vision of what we wanted the film to do and, and where we wanted it to go but we didn't know the storyline, right? We didn't know which way it was gonna, which way it was gonna pan out. So, um, you know, and, and that's where, for me to be working with someone like you, it was, I just put my faith in, in you, like your, my confidence in your ability and your creativity to piece those things together. Like you're the one with all the content and you're looking at it all and, and, and you know, you had sent me a few things here and there, like, hey, here's, uh, and, and out to the partners to say, Hey, here's what we're doing. We're not just, you know, sitting on our hands here. We're actually moving forward to this project, but also, you know, um, here's kind of how it's evolving. And then to be able to, um, see the final product, you know, and, and see what you thought was, and I, and that's where I felt like you, your creativity was really apparent was that to see where the final product ended up was essentially your um, you're doing, you know, like you, you saw, I mean, I'm sure there were multiple storylines there that the direction, the, the film could have gone, but you know, you're like, this is how we can tie all this stuff together here. And, and really, you know, the, the vision for that film was to inspire and motivate people. And I think that, um, when you have that underlying tone, you're able to say, this is how we're going to best be able to tell that message, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I think that that's really, maybe an interesting fact or interesting part about being in, um, in film and, and photography and, and just being able to tell that story, but you're telling it, you're telling it in a way that you would maybe 
like it to be heard, but that's always up to interpretation for whoever's watching or, or whoever's looking at that art, right? Yeah. Uh, well, so there's interpretive stuff going on there for sure. Um, I mean, there's, you know, you're recording uh, whatever happens in the world, right? But mm-hmm. then, like you're saying, in editing, there's uh, different ways you can kind of paint that picture. You know, yeah. um, there's so many tools you have. You have, um, you know, everything that you capture during the project, and then you can kind of weave that story, you know, with ambient sounds, um, with music, um, with the pieces, the editorial decisions that you decide to, you mm-hmm. know, choose to include or not include. Um, but there's just so much power in, in, in kind of the, the edit to, to tell uh, that story. And what's really hard with stories is um, like, uh, like linear stories. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that kind of pr- prefer to tell that, you know, step-by-step sequence, but like trying to weave a, 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 a interesting story about a human being and still advance the narrative without using kind of that step-by-step process is something that um, I really like super like I'm hip to. I love that yeah. piece of it. Um, that's why with Unknown Country, I was really stoked on it when we had the opportunity to do the podcast with the gravel lot. Right. Because uh, being able to film that and then try, kind of bring that to life against the backdrop of you know, your experience with DKXL was just, I mean, just played itself so well to that idea. It was cool. Yeah. But I, if, if we would have set out with that intention, I don't know if it would have come together. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, no. I guess that's why you just film everything, right? <laughs> that's kind of why you, I just have hard drives and hard drives full of, uh, um, you know, uh, moments in my, my studio. Uh, but yeah, no, I, like, I, I think, you know, you know, kind of going into the unknown country, it was cool because we just knew, you know, there's a, a story there, but what the message is, is something that we sat down early on and tried to figure out what it is. Yeah. And that we, I think we could have achieved that message no matter how the, the situation went. Yeah. Um, but the event on the day, the event on the yeah. day, you know, but mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just glad we had those kind of early discussions to yeah. figure out what it is. Um, trying to think like, you know, another kind of interesting like documentary idea, um, like one of my favorite cinematographers, Roger Deakins, like he got his start as a documentary filmmaker and his first film that he did coming out of school was uh, this idea of this kind of like round the world yacht race, right? Mm-hmm. And so instead of, I think what made his film and his sensibilities really interesting was he was focused on the interplay of all the people within the, the sailboat, right? And against the backdrop of this you know, expanse of the world, and that's what made it just a really fascinating film. So, um, you know, those are those are what's interesting is just um, every human story is just so freaking powerful. And if right. you get the opportunity to share that story, I mean, that's like a real unique privilege. So, well, and cool. I think it's it gives people that authentic inside view of what's really what's really going on. You know, like as a as a spectator in those kind of events or those kind of scenarios, you're, you're able to see certain elements, but you're not able to get that like kind of behind the scenes, yeah. really understanding of what's happening. You know, like in that case, you're like, you're watching a boat go fast across water, right? You know, like you don't see all the struggles, the highs and lows and, you know, emotional roller coasters that are happening on the boat and the struggles between different crew members. And yep. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. It's just, it's just cool. It's a unique privilege to be able to share those stories. It's really, sure. it's, it's awesome. Well, yeah. And that, and that, I was thinking about that, um, you know, a friend of ours, Eddie Clark, 
right? So he's does similar work, right? I assume that you guys are kind of the same rough definition of what you guys do. And uh, he's recorded a lot of races. He's mostly, I think, still photos, okay. more, more so than video. But, um, you know, he's, I don't know if it's just he has downtime or just feels like it's something that he's been wanting to do, but he's been going through it. Some of his um, Ride the Divide uh, or the Tour Divide um, f- footage from years past and, and just putting, organizing it and kind of putting it together. And, and he's been kind of, um, you know, dripping it out a little bit here and there on social media. And so that kind of stuff, I'm sure you've just got, like you said, you've just got, you know, archives of things that, and you don't want to get rid of any of that stuff, right? Because who knows when you might want to pull from it, right? Yeah, it it's um, like, yeah, not to bore people with just how much content is produced, but a ton, yeah. you know? I just filled, like this year, like a 36 terabyte yeah. know, drive with just, you know, one year of projects. Wow. And then, you know, just being able to catalog those assets and reference them. I have a kind of workflow, like some stuff gets put off for later and some stuff just right. gets, you know, it might be gone for forever. But yeah, yeah like I think documentary filmmaking, you're maybe 10 to one coverage. I mean, yeah. 10 or 20 to one, I mean, you're filming a lot, Yeah, you know, cause you don't know when, I think what like makes a really great um, documentary film is authentic moments, right? Sure. You want that authenticity and you have no idea when that authenticity is going to happen. You can try to maybe try to create it, but you really, it's, it's nearly impossible. Like, yeah, you can tell an authentic moment from a non-authentic moment for sure. Yeah, well, so. that's reality TV, right? Right. So, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's super real. <laughs> yep. Let's. The script looks great. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But yeah, so it's tough. So you do end up recording a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking the other day you were telling me something about the the clown motel. Yeah, that's a project that, I was just working on this morning. Oh, you are. Yeah. So and that's in Nevada somewhere? Yeah, yeah. Tonopah. Tonopah, Nevada. What is the story with that place? Um, so the backstory of the project is it's a... Um, can we talk about like stuff like oh, that? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Talk sure. about whatever. Um, so the backstory is um, a company... I, mean, I don't know how familiar um, your audience is with, with the cycling world, but Niner Bikes wanted me to do a project um, kind of about this discovery of like ghost towns via you know this via gravel bikes right uh-huh. um and so your your buddy yuri sure um was kind of yep, yep was kind of leading that up and so i kind of at that point had free total creative control over the project so i wanted to tell the story of charles brayfogle who was this uh prospector in the mid 1800s who uh, was attacked one night and then like fought for survival for uh, a couple months in the Nevada desert um, was then like, I think captured and was hostage with this um, uh, one of the Indian tribes there. And I think the children just rode him around as a horse. That's what like the chief had like kind of designated him as. And then like a Mormon uh, group of Mormons were coming through the Valley and, and found him and like bought his freedom. And during this time he had found this, piece of rock that was so rich with gold that it was most likely the most, like the greatest gold mine in in history. And so he spent the remaining 25 years of his life trying to find where he had found, like lost that rock or found that rock and never found it. Right. Um, so I was like, Oh, what a great story for, um, a gravel adventure, the search for Charles Bray Fogel's gold. Yeah. So we started in that, that region. How did you hear this story? 
Where did you hear about this story? Due diligence, man. <laughs> <laughs> when somebody's like, hey, we want to do this project, you just got to start like Googling. The okay, area. so it wasn't something that you were already like privy to. No, no. I had like kind of looked at that region. Yeah. And then I had, you know, I make, uh, I had made some calls to the Colorado, Nevada, like mining society. Um, I mean, kind of just doing my due diligence, sure. you know, pre-production prep, all that stuff. And that's where I found out. And it turns out his granddaughter lives um, near me in Lakewood, Colorado, which is oh, crazy, wow. right? So, um, but also uh, part of the brand um, uh, vibe, kind of their creative brief is they're a fairly lighthearted brand. Niner. Niner yeah. is. Okay. Um, so that's where the Clown Motel came in. So we started in Tonopah and then kind of all their, um, I kind of filmed it um, like the office, you know? Yeah, yeah. Pam and Jim. Sure. But instead of being in an office, all their kind of talking head cutaways are in this Clown Motel. And so the Clown Motel, um, itself is in Tonopah, Nevada. You can visit it right now. And it was, it's owned by, I forget the gentleman's name, but he, it was opened in the eighties. It's haunted because it's built next to an old cemetery, oh, God. uh, 1800, like, you know, I mean, so many cemeteries in that area. And I guess there was a flood that like washed over the cemetery. So they actually built the hotel on the cemetery. And I mean, you go talk to the, the, the housekeepers there mm. and they're, you're 100% convinced. If you don't believe in ghosts going into that, you're going to be convinced. You're going to wow. be, you're going to come out a believer. And I was so, say, is it, I mean, just looking at photos online, it's creepy as hell. So creepy. So creepy. I mean, so whether the, you're into clowns or not, whether you're not, I mean, <laughs> so, so the gentleman that owns it really bought it because he loves clowns. Yeah. So like originally I think there was a hundred clown, like he has a collection in the lobby of clowns. Yeah. I mean, it sounds so horrible, right? Yeah. Um, and then he really pr prided himself on the fact that when he bought it, I think he inherited a collection of 500 clowns or something like that. And now it's at 1,200 clowns. I mean, he's really up the clown game. And also we looked at the, um, the assessor records. This clown motel, I think he paid, I mean, close to a million dollars for it. It was like 900 and some thousand dollars for this clown motel, which just seemed crazy expensive. Um, I don't know. I don't really have my finger on the pulse of like the clown motel market. Yeah. You know what that real estate value is, but um, it's not on Zillow. It's not you know on Zillow. Um, it's just tough to say. I think the estimate was way off on Zillow because I mean I don't think they knew there was like 600 clowns. Um, you know in the market value. But so he lives there and um, just deep in the clowns. So I was like, oh, what a better place to film. Uh, the talking head, you know, Jim and Pam sequences other than in a clown. Is it on the way to anywhere? Like, I don't know where it is. So, it oh, Tonopah, like, Nevada? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, is, so, it like, is it like Route 6 kind of? Kind of that vibe. It's uh, it's the major thoroughfare between Reno and Las Vegas. Okay. As you go north out of Vegas. And there's a military base where they operate all the drones out of. Yeah. So all the drone strikes that you hear about in the news are operated out, out of that area. Um, but other than that, there's just a small town. Uh, maybe a population of a couple hundred. Yeah. I mean, there's the Clown Motel. There's a real famous casino, um, an incredible tire shop. When we were filming this project, um, two just destroyed tires in this rental car. Yeah. But I got full coverage. I just like <laughs> turned my keys in full, you know, um, felt great. Um, but this tire shop, I was like, oh, this is going to be expensive. And they were like doing new tires with a repair. Like, oh, yeah, we have one of those in stock. We'll, we'll swap out your tire. And I mean, the tires were just blown to bits. Um, you know, it was like 25 bucks. <laughs> like I was crazy. Like, where can you get a $25 tire anywhere? Right. Right. So, um, did that, um, which was great. Um, a lot of tarantulas, um, just in the middle of nowhere, but it's also interesting fact about it. It's kind of one of those downwind sites. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
you know, you, you talk to some old timers there and they're like, oh yeah, you know, they'd say like, oh, we're going to, you know, just FYI, 6.30 this morning, we're going to go blow up a uh, nuclear weapon over the hill if you want to come watch. So people would just come out, you know, sitting on the, like kids sitting on their, you know, dad's shoulders right. watching nuclear weapons getting detonated back in the day. I mean, that is insane. Yeah. And so they're what's considered downwind because the way the government kind of chose the timing was the wind patterns. So if the wind was blowing towards California, they wouldn't blow, they wouldn't detonate it. But if it was blowing north towards Tonopah or Reno, then they would like, you know, light one of them up. Wow. Yeah. It's a crazy place. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like, I feel like I have made that drive one time. Um, we, we were coming from a cross race in Seattle and had to get, that was a weekend, Saturday, Sunday. And then we had to get to Vegas by Wednesday um, and we, I feel oh. like we went through Reno. Yeah, you would have gone right through Tonopah. But, um, yep. yeah, because yeah, on the it. eastern border of it is Area 51. That's all, you know, nuclear test site, oh. aliens, that whole thing. Yeah. Completely to the west until to, you get out to Pioche, Nevada, somewhere kind of in that area. And then to the west of it's Death Valley. So there's really no other route than yeah. going through Tonopah. Sure. Really, Were you guys the only ones staying at this clown motel, or the, is it a motel or hotel? Yeah, just you know, just 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 in full transparency, we didn't stay there. Oh, okay. You know, it was um, uh, we stayed across the street at the Quality Inn. Yeah, I think it was a Comfort Inn, maybe. Really nice, great breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> creepy clowns. In no the creepy clowns. A fitness center. I mean, I was uh, trying to get some get fit a little bit, um, but it was right across the street and. Um, but people stay there. No, people for sure stay there. Yeah. Yeah, that was funny because. Um, I think this guy really wanted to show off some of his haunted rooms. So he's like, yeah. oh, follow me. Yeah. And, um, you know, sure enough, you know, there was, you know, just let us into like other people's rooms, you know, their like clothes is laid out. I mean, oh, <laughs> whatever. Weird. Yeah. Super weird. Um, Did he knock first? No. I mean, I'm trying to think. <laughs> what if, if they, or if not. you sign a disclaimer, like, Hey, you're in 188. Yeah, so totally. we're going to be showing this one because this is where Gary lives. This is where exactly that's, that's the thing. Um, there was, I don't remember the room numbers. There was like two or three that were pretty red, like haunted on the reg, had yeah. recordings. And, um, you know, he has like a little, like a, you know, comment card, but like, leave your experience. Uh -huh. Like, tell us what weird crap happened in there. Yeah. And so he let us read some of those. Um, I mean, if you're ever there, I'm, just, I'm sure he'll happily show you other people's rooms. Yeah. Yeah. You believe in ghosts? Uh, no, I don't know if I believe in ghosts. Per se, even after being to the clown motel. No, even after being in the clown motel, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really believe in like a like these like mischievous or is it mal not malevolent, but um, spirits, you know, that are out there. Like kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm a spiritual person for sure, but like uh, like seeing the like uh, depression in the bed or something, I'm like that's kind of not my my yeah. scene. Huh. Um, but I do believe there's like other things out there for sure, 100. percent Yeah like spirits that are caught between realms. I don't know if it's a caught between realms things. Um, but I believe they're like a, like an ancestral, like kind of looking out for you situation like uh -huh. that. I feel like, I think, I think there's good things happening that are looking out for certain things. I don't know. Well, I grew up in Arkansas and they had like 45 minutes away from my hometown. There was this town called Eureka Springs and they had a, um, Crescent a Crescent hotel, which was, historically known for being haunted as well. And I, I never stayed there. I think my sister stayed there, but, um, is that the thing to do? Like on like your senior trip or whatever, no. just go stay in room one Oh three. It's crazy. Definitely not. But it was more involved like Leonard Skinner and oh. 
senior trip was not was not going to the Crescent Hotel. But um, but yeah, and then I saw that later later on I saw that um, hotel on like one of those ghost yeah TV shows that's on like the Discovery Channel. Yeah, which that, I don't, that crew definitely stayed at the Clown Hotel. Yeah, so they checked it out. Yeah, but I've definitely I've experienced things where you know you, you feel like a presence. You know, like you're like, and, and I think it's probably more kind of what you were saying about like ancestral, yeah. maybe, or a close connection, you know, whatever. or like I've been on, there's some areas, um, areas that I've gone riding and it's just like this almost, um, like almost a historical place, you know? So again, like growing up in Arkansas, we were real close to this military park you know, and that there's a civil war battle fought there, yeah. you know, and you can go out there and I would go out and I was more of a runner growing up and not so much cyclist, but, um, going out there and running on the, not necessarily on the dirt, like on the grass, but there's a road that goes sure. around. Like there's a, there's a presence there, you know, that I feel like is pretty undeniable. Um, but then even like out on, on bike rides and stuff, you know, I've been out in areas like, yeah, there's, there's definitely some energy here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you said you ran into some of that when you were in Iceland, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or there was stories, right? There was stories of there's so, um, yeah. So Iceland, there's where the, another project we wrote across. Yeah. Tell Iceland. us, tell us about it. Um, so the, so the film is called shared territory and, um, we were, the idea was to rediscover this ancient passage through the heart of the Icelandic highlands called Sprenky Sonder. I still, I'm not sure if that's even pronounced right, but sounds um, right. Sounds, sounds right. Right. Um, yeah. Icelandic. Yeah. Iceland sounds so Icelandic. And so, uh, it's, it, it translates to the, the, the route or the trail of dead horses or exploded horses because the, the, the horses would have to be ridden so hard that they would often die because there's no food or water. Actually, I take that back so much water, no food. Yeah. Right. Uh, for the horses to survive. So they were, why would they ride them so hard then? Oh. Because they got to get to the other side of where the they, food is. They have to cross this expanse of glacial moraine. Mm. Um, it's basically like a gray, like river stones, but for hundreds of kilometers, square kilometers, I mean, and glaciers and volcanoes. And that's all you see. There's nothing out there, right? Um, so if they wanted to go faster across Iceland for whatever reason, they would go across this, this, this passage. Um, if they wanted to take the slower route, they'd go around the outside of Iceland, right? So very few people went across this route. And so we wanted to kind of rediscover this passage. And so part of it, and we get kind of back to documentary filmmaking, we wanted to provide three perspectives to it. One was um, a modern day perspective, which was Iceland search and rescue. One was a very historic perspective. So we partnered with the University of Iceland and we worked with some professors there to kind of paint the picture of what this passage was like back in, you know, the days of the Vikings, and then our own perspective of it, our own experience of this space. So you talk to any Icelanders, and they they'll tell you crazy stories about ghosts out there. You know, um, professors had friends that um, experienced you know uh, uh, being just surrounded by like a described as kind of this amphitheater of screaming faces uh, looking at at them. Wow. Um, another. Uh, girl we met her parents would share this story about like this lost love that had been found wandering out there and um in Sprenky Sandra it's just kind of 
And then you talk to the, his, the professors and they would talk about the hinter people, these kind of mischievous souls that would try to get you lost and redirect you out there. I mean, so there's just just a you know, rich history of, of ghost stories from there. And then our own experience of it, I, I think we experienced something out there, you know? Um, when we were making that crossing, like the very middle, the heart of Iceland, there's nothing really out there. And to us, it was... Like it was a, like a daunting experience, you know? I mean, you, you have to make it a certain distance, otherwise you're gonna get, you know, potentially caught in a storm. Um, I mean, weather would, weather's a kind of a big factor out there and rivers are kind of filling during the day, so they're unpassable. So there was this uh, need to get across this expanse. And it was like 120K or 150K, but like when you're bikepacking 150K is pretty slow. But um, we kind of just were just like, just, you know, kind of hoofing it pretty hard and we made it to this one section where we felt like we were maybe a little bit in the clear um you know maybe we're like 30k out from our kind of destination and it's just like i said there's just just nothing out there just hills of this moraine and i know for a fact i saw two figures in the distance pointed them out to my 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 expedition partner and he's blind in one eye so he's not sure if he saw him or not remy's blind in one eye he's blind in one eye (laughs) Yeah, he got hit by a baseball. Oh, damn. A pitch. Yeah, when he was a kid, so he's blind in one eye. Um, still runs a great restaurant, can ride super fast. Yeah. Um, super great dude. But So he doesn't know if he saw him or not. But anyways, uh, yeah, I kind of checked my line, looked up, they are gone. We assumed, oh, they're just on the other side of the hills, our camp. But the, uh, there was nothing. So I felt like uh, we had experienced this presence, um, as you mentioned. But they're very stoic creatures that were like kind of like... Like, I don't know if, like, our, our quest was true out there, if, our, like, our hearts were pure, but I feel like they're just like, oh, cool, you guys can go. You know, we've kind of seen you this far. You're good to go. Yeah. And that was, like, the kind of energy I felt out there. So, yeah. I don't know. How long did it take you to do that section? Oh, that, that section was, like, 16 hours maybe, something like that. And you did it all in one push? It's all in one push, yeah. Because yeah. there's nowhere to stay out there. There's not. We could have. We could have. We could have definitely bivvied down. You know, yeah. we were ready to bivvy for sure. Yeah. Um, but what we were racing against was right before the um, the kind of our point we were headed to, which was like a, a hut in mm-hmm. the middle of Iceland. Um, there's a river there, and these glacier river, these glacial rivers will um, fill up during the day. They like, swell throughout the day. Swell throughout the day. Yeah, they'll go from nothing. You'll like watch a river form right there, and then by the time you get to the um, you know, as you work your way along the Great Glacier, because what it's melting during the day is, you know, you'll go from watching a river form to, you know, six foot, seven foot, like, I don't know what, I'm not a kayaker, so I'm not going to say they're like Cat 5 rapids yeah, or anything. Yeah, it's yeah. not like the Grand Canyon, but pretty much impassable. Yeah. Um, so you would, you know, that's what we were kind of racing against. So that was the sense of urgency we had was to try to beat that. Seven foot deep? Yeah. Oh, and as wide as? As wide as, you, you can know, see. can see, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Mighty, that, that, mighty that, that Mississippi. Glacier, the mighty Mississippi. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy that that glacier will shed that much water during the right. day, you know? Yeah. It's insane. Wow. Yeah, so it's a race against daylight. It's a race or, against or, daylight. Or heat, I guess, right? Like As the, as the day warms up, the glacier's melting yep, and the that's rivers exactly are swelling. Right. So you get an early you have, start and then try to, you know, get done. What earlier. time of year were you there? It was August, early August. So you have a lot of daylight. Yeah. Yeah, a ton. Because it doesn't get... Like, Really 20 dark hours? ever, probably 20 hours. Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't even ever get dark, really. Huh. Yeah. It's always kind of like a, during that time of the year, it's kind of just this beautiful sunset. I wonder how long it would take people to make that passage 
back in the day, like when it was like the bit known as the yeah. Um, the as the shortcut the exp- exploding horses yeah like, yeah it was that was the shortcut like okay we got we can do this in two days or is it gonna, are they gonna bang it out in Figure one day like 300k on a horse i don't know how long that takes right it's pretty flat not a lot of climbing but it's all river rock it's all river rock yeah so footings off i mean it's just really and then it's like running through snow some, almost you know yeah it's, it's like not sure footing it's not sure footing at all yeah, yeah. i don't know how long that that passage would take. Hmm. I mean, there's, you know, the Icelandic sagas and one of the professors was talking about just how like there's these legends of this, you know, a storm had come in and um, was just decimating like all his people. And he was just this story of him trying to put his, his people back on their horses to get them, you know, out of the storm. And, you know, like a lot of them apparently perished out there. Yeah. So much like your civil war battle. Right. Sure. It's one of those things where, you know, a lot of lives have been lost, I guess, out that mm-hmm. way. Well, yeah, and it, you throw that into the fact that you're multiple hours into this journey and on limited food and your exertion levels up and then there's crazy winds and, you know, plus like any kind of backstory to creep into your mind. Like, yeah, there there's, could be some creatures out here. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I mean, we, we went out there fully aware of every one of these stories that pretty much every Icelander had told us about. Yeah, so yeah. it got, you know, light creepy out there. I mean, I also, I don't want to say that we were, like, really in, like, any crazy form of, of peril because in Iceland Search and Rescue is amazing, right? And we had one of those Garmin devices we could just, like, flag SOS. and Oh, like a spot you know, tracker. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So if something, like, really bad happened, I mean, if we, like, broke a limb or something, that would have been, you're probably eight hours from extraction, but yeah. people are going to be able to get, get to you. Right. But there's still, there's just nobody out there. I've never been in a place like that where just, you don't see anybody for days, you know, or anything, right? Or, I mean, there's, well, that's nothing. There's yeah. no, there's no life whatsoever. It's just, there's no bugs. There's yeah. nothing, just nothing. No birds, no birds, no bugs. No, um, there's no like an occasional marmot or something, nothing out there. Right. Yeah. It's just interesting. Beautiful, beautiful landscape though. So you made good friends with the, the search and rescue guys. Yeah. I, mean, I saw in the film we did that you were kind of broed down with those guys, and yeah, they um, they got some pretty cool rigs. Like they have I don't know, I got a soft spot for like Land Cruisers and stuff. So yeah, their Land Cruisers are amazing. Yeah, they're. Um, I mean, I don't think any of their stuff is legal anywhere in America. Oh, you know, not. no, because you saw the tire sizes. Yeah. I don't even know how to measure tires that big. Like, yeah, they're huge. Um, but yeah, so the super Jeep or the super truck is just, um, so like, it's a, it's a thing out in Iceland and the tire volumes are so big that it can run pretty much on any terrain. So it's like, you know, if you want to go run glaciers, float, right? Like on water, almost float on water. Yeah. Um, so you want to go run glaciers in the middle of the winter. You can do that if you want to run over river rock or through rivers during the summer. Yeah. I mean, the super Jeeps are like definitely, uh. Yeah, you go. Like, I feel like you go over there, and like everything just kind of pales in comparison. Yeah, you know, anywhere else. Well, that's got to be a crazy lifestyle if you're if you're search and rescue in Vail, Colorado, <laughs> you know, versus like Iceland. I mean, yeah. in Vail, you're you're rescuing people from backcountry. You know, you're yeah. definitely in sure. some precarious places, but it's not just. Con- I mean, no. What are I people? See- what are they rescuing people from? Like cold and weather mostly, like rain and. I think, I almost think it's just, I mean, so 
they're rescuing people from their own idiocy, I think was the Well, that's probably the biggest across part the of board. It. That's probably the, the general. Board. Well, so the idiocy piece of it, there's two stories there. One was there was a French team of Nordic skiers that was going to try to do this similar passage to that we were doing, yeah. and they were doing it in winter, and they had to get rescued seven times. Oh, no. That's idiocy, yeah, right? Yeah, just got them on speed dial. Speed dial, exactly. And then uh, the other idiocy was... Um, Kind of where we were one night, um, the the way the Icelandic search and rescue is kind of structured, they have kind of these wardens, these areas where they're, you know, in charge of, yeah. uh, that they oversee. And so we're, and there's usually kind of a hut system, maybe somewhere around there. But anyways, these uh, search and rescues had just gotten called out to save these, these girls that drove off the road. And um, the way they drove off the road was it was just, socked in freezing cold rain they're in some sort of rented car i don't know where they were not a super jeep not a super jeep <laughs> more of a subaru and um <laughs> they uh they, they decided they didn't want to wait for the defroster so they just started driving and like down those like hairpins volcanic hairpins and just mm. straight off the road And there's no way you're going to get out your car out of that situation yeah. so that was the idiocy that we saw firsthand um, these gals showed up at our camp and were like, oh yeah, that's, we drove off the road and they're from the Netherlands. So we call that going full Dutch, oh. you know? So if you're doing something crazy, you're just going full Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you don't want the, uh, the, um, the, uh, you know, if you don't want to wait for the defroster, you just don't want to take the time to do it right. You know, you're full Dutch. Um, so there was that. And, but then also because Iceland doesn't have a, like a militarized, like force, yeah. like an army or national guard. So the Iceland search and rescue is also part of the militia, the militia. Yeah. Right there. So they, they are their coast guard. They're kind of their national guard. So like when I, when I, when was that year that the vol volcano erupted that created like all the European air travel got shut down like 2016 or something, yeah, something like that. Recently. Yeah. Recently, fairly yeah. Re yeah, very recently, super recent past. They had to get Iceland search and rescue saved so many people or the, you know, local population, just get them out oh, of to evacuate them, evacuate them. Yep. Volcano. Yep. So they're, they, they do, um, I think they're doing like a thousand to 1200 rescues a year. I mean, oh, wow. they're pretty active and they also serve as a coast guard and those yeah. seas are non forgiving. Yeah. So yeah, Cold. they got a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And you get to live in Iceland. Yeah. Is that a good thing? Um, would, yeah. you, would you live in Iceland? I would. You would. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like my, my North or South. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's not that's not big a difference. Um, I feel like uh, somehow like my heart and my spirit is aligned with the Icelandic landscape. Yeah, you know. So I feel like I've been, like very close to that. Um, but if you talk to the Icelanders, it's really pretty rugged in the sense that you know, as much as you have long summers, you also have like horrible, horrible night or the winters are just so dark. Oh, we, right. we were there couple years ago um, for New Year's Eve and it's just you know the sun breaks the horizon around 11 and then goes back down around 2 30 or 3 oh, uh, wow. so you're spending a lot of time in darkness but the key to the Icelanders is they bounce out of there and go to like Portugal oh. um, for like a month yeah you know but it gets real bad tanning salons are probably like tanning super salons popular there. so popular <laughs> uh greenhouses like all that stuff you know yeah. just trying to get your vitamin d wherever yeah. you can get it um but yeah, so all the like true Icelanders recognize that and just bounce out. And, well, we know. were talking about going. It came up, I think Monday night. And Linda and we were and my Linda and Tatum and I were talking about things we want to go do. Like what's kind of one of the 
bucket list items we want to check off and um seeing the northern lights was definitely on the list were they there when were the northern lights happening when you were there so yeah in august yep because that's kind of the time to see them isn't it no 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 no. the time to see them is like november december because then oh. you have like so much darkness. Oh, gotcha. You kind of want to be. That makes more sense. Yep. So I've seen yeah. them. So in, just so you know, I've done zero research on this. Yep. So Obviously. they happen all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's just a matter of being able to see them with light pollution, like the sun. Um, but so we saw them. We went there. That's why we went to Iceland for the first time. Oh. It was um, New Year's Eve, like 2015, something like that. Yeah. And we saw them. And, and it's a life-changing experience. Yeah. I mean, it's like seeing a full eclipse. I mean, you just watch something in the universe that you don't really understand. Um, and you make up stories about gods or whatever. I don't know. Right. I mean, it's just, well, we saw this thing. We were in, in Hollywood, uh, for spring break two years ago, maybe. And we went to the, um, uh, what's it called where the Hollywood sign is that Griffith park. Yeah. Right. So yep. there's a observatory yeah. there at the top. So in, in there they had this whole, um, I guess it was like an IMAX type theater, but you lay back and it's all on the ceiling. Yep. So they show almost all like the, a planetarium for yeah, yeah. Yep. And so, uh, they had this whole thing about Northern lights then. So I think that probably like piqued our interest then. Yeah. And it was pretty interesting cause it talked about the history of, you know, how people historically defined them, like what or described them sure. or, or like explained what the Northern lights are. And like you said, it was mostly like gods that were, fighting a battle or whatever, yeah. you know? So, um, yeah, it just seems like something really hard to, hard to explain. You can't wrap your brain around it. Yeah. You, like you lay there and you'll watch them and, um, it's, I think Icelanders just kind of take it for granted. Is now. everybody on mushrooms? <laughs> yeah. The whole, yeah. Basically from November till, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's just like a crazy Joshua tree. Just, it's full. Yeah. <laughs> the whole country. Yeah. Um, I mean, they just have this like a six month long vision quest out there, but um, no, you just watch them. And it's like one of those things, like normally as a human being, like we're, re- we have enough reason to like track change, yeah. but the sky just changes and you're not able to under like, there's a gap between this kind of change that's going on in the sky, you know, the shapes of them, the way they shift, the way they change colors. And there's no way your brain can track the, change it's amazing it's incredible yeah for sure go check them out though yeah i think that's going to be on our list it's just a matter of where we are like where do we go to see them yeah you know, do we, fairbanks alaska is another one right yep yeah and then um is it finland or, or norway both maybe? of those like, yeah they had a photo of these dudes in these like big suits that are like insulated and inflatable suits so you're you're floating in a fjord watching the northern that lights sounds- like incredible <laughs> maybe i don't yeah I, no i think so um it sounds i don't know it sounds like this is pretty touristy right <laughs> well so when we were up there we did a like both my wife and i are like really into scuba diving so there's a, a place in iceland where the two tectonic plates meet yeah the european and the Euro, uh, european and the american tectonic plates and you can scuba dive there it's called silfra um so we just did a like on new year's day we did our new year's eve day we did a scuba diving uh, situation in there we it's a very short scuba dive it's super cold but it's like the purest water on earth you can just like take your regulator out and drink water it's amazing um oh, so it's fresh water fresh water yeah yeah yep huh um but we talked to uh the dive masters there and that's a lot of times what they'll do is come out there at night and just hang hang yeah yeah just inflate inflate their bcds lay in fresh water sure and just watch the northern lights i mean it sounds like 
you and I've talked about sensory deprivation. Right. I mean, that's just not, that's like sensory, like whatever the opposite of deprivation is. It's yeah. just so enhancing. That's just right. incredible. Huh. Yeah. Are those, do you know, are those plates the kind of plates that push they're, up? They're moving away from each other. Oh. Yeah. So I think they move like a millimeter a year or something like super, mm-hmm. super small. But you can, at one point you can just reach out and like, you can oh, you're like across. down in the, the yeah. Crevasse. So the so the depth of it's probably eighty feet at the maximum depth, and then you're just kind of you can like reach out with your left and right hand and feel the this, both plates. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's pretty rad. And is that because those plates are moving? Is that why there's so much volcanic yeah, activity? Yeah, one hundred percent. So super volcanic up there because of that. So I've heard it's I've heard it's fairly cheap, affordable to get there, but expensive when you get there. Right. Yep. It's, uh, so the winter, they, Iceland air flies. If you have any, you know, if anybody's listening and like, I think the places they serve out of are Boston, Denver has a direct flight to Iceland, uh, New York, the Boston flights short too. It's like three hours if you're on the East coast, just yeah. to pop up there in the winter. Um, but yeah, once you get there, it's kind of pricey. Um, but in the winter you can find, uh, like we rented a VRBO or Airbnb out in the middle of nowhere in the southern part of iceland just to kind of like our own like little private observatory mm-hmm. i think we rented it was like 70 bucks a night and it was just beautiful just kind of be out there surrounded by wild icelandic horses waiting for the northern lights it's cool just you and your wife just yeah my no we are actually there with another couple oh yeah yep yep so there's four of us cool but it's cool but you can get there pretty cheap summer's really expensive though oh really yeah yeah, yeah i have some friends that went and did a this was like a marathon maybe or a off-road ultra or something up there they said it was just unbelievable yeah seems like the wrong way to do it because <laughs> you just want to stop all the time and yeah like, right. you know like oh i'm just gonna chill out in this you know field of green forest that i've never seen before or moss you know yeah. there's not really any trees up there that's pretty deforested at this point i don't know if it ever had trees right or they just built if... a ton of boats back in the day <laughs> they're really <laughs> big into ships stripped all the yeah just stripped them all trees for boats yeah that might have happened. <laughs> that definitely might have happened in Iceland. Yeah, cool place though. Yeah, it's on our list, man. I would definitely get up there, especially after after seeing your film and um, and hearing all your stories and different folks that have been up there because it does seem like it's become much more of a popular layover spot or destination yep. spot. Yep. But, yeah, um, so I think people are super rad too. Yeah, yeah, super, super, really welcoming, genuine, nice people. Yeah, they're not yeah. pissed off that you're there. No, I don't think so. Um, no, yeah, no, I don't think I don't think I don't think they are because I think with Iceland, like I think the I don't know. Well, do they have any export? I mean, is is it just tourism? Well, they were like they are shipbuilders, and then banking was like a big something they bet on till two thousand eight. Yeah, after two thousand eight, not really. Yeah, um, but banking. Like banking. It's a popular place to put your yeah. Money. It was a bank. Do they have like bank. different tax rules, or do you know have any idea? I have no know. idea. Huh. That's one thing I don't understand is yeah. inflation. I'm not really good with inflation and banking rules, mm. banking in general. I mean, mm. I'm like a, I don't even have a debit card, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my, it's not my world. Right. Yeah. Probably better to keep it that way. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Somehow I feel safer. Yeah. Yeah. Big brother watching over. Also, I don't feel like I can get robbed. Like, you know, I'm not, nobody can get my money. Yeah. Yeah. So do you don't buy anything online? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the credit card company would protect me, maybe. <laughs> yeah, they, you know? got, they got your back. They got my back. Totally. <laughs> um, have you talked to Daniel Wakefield? 
Paisley recently? DWP? Yeah. I talked to him kind of on the reg. Yeah. yeah. yeah actually, I just called him on the way up. But, I but you haven't done any projects with him? I haven't done any projects with Daniel lately. Yeah, because whenever you and I first met, we yep. were doing a project that he was kind of heading up. Yeah, he was. Right? He was, kind yep. of the, he was the, one of the creative directors for it. Yep. Right. And that was with the Roll Massif yep. project. And that's, that's when you and I met and started kind of scheming some ideas. Um, but it's funny because I, I didn't know you. I didn't know Daniel. And I didn't know really anybody else in that group. Um, I don't think I knew anybody. I knew of a few people. Um, but, you know, so as we're kind of, we were, we were together for about five days of traveling around and, and riding these routes because we were creating media for yeah. the Roll Massif, which is um, essentially it's, it's five or six different events that are um, here in Colorado. You know, you got the Elephant Rock, the Copper Triangle, Tour of the Moon, Tour of the Vineyards. Um, and they've added some gravel events and, and so they've taken these kind of iconic events that have happened for many years and they've kind of put some, uh, symbiosis, I guess, behind yeah, it. Like they kind of unified them like yeah. under one umbrella. Right. Yep. Um, so really a fun project I thought to be involved with. I think I found out on day four or five, the reason I was there was solely because I had a beard ah. and they just needed a box to check like, okay, our number one bearded guy that, that was supposed to be here couldn't make it. Who was, who, do you know who it was? It was Remy. Oh, was it? It was Remy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so, um, so I, I just got to, you know, fill a, fill a that spot, demographic. but, um, but it was really fun to, to kind of get to know everybody. And, and as we're hanging out and, and, you know, in the evenings we'd all, of course, everybody's like starting to social media stalk each other, you know, like, Oh, I didn't know you were this person, sure. you know, like, Oh, you're that you know, Daniel Wakefield Paisley. Okay. So, and so you figure out, um, you know, what their backgrounds are. Like everybody obviously comes from a cycling background, but, um, I just think Daniel's just such an interesting dude with like everything he's done for this, um, adventure bike world, you know, and then you had just gotten back from your, I mean, you were nursing, nursing a knee injury that essentially you got while you're in Iceland. Right. Right. And so we were, <laughs> we were sitting there at copper at the condo in Copper one night and we were just hanging out, um, chatting. And I think it was just the three of us. And I had kind of gotten this, you know, bug in my ear about doing some, some kind of bike packing adventure, you know, cause that's out of my wheelhouse. That's just not what I normally do. I come from the world of like pinning on a number and, and going, going for like these more competitive, bigger events that are, um, I guess more in the competitive world. So, um, you're a performance cyclist. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so the adventure world has been like tugging on me a little bit. And so I just remember sitting there and it was like, Hey, so what do you guys know about bike packing? <laughs> and you both kind of looked at each other like, is this guy fucking with us right now? Like, well, quite a bit actually. And so I was just so naive to the whole thing and right. not only to that scene, but also just like, you know, who each of you were, you know, so now I've kind of educated myself. One, you and I have got to talk, uh, for countless hours and, uh, but two, to, to go back and kind of, um, learn more about Daniel. Cause he's such an interesting character and you've done a lot of work with him, like with manual for speed. Um, and then he was, what was the, the Rafa project that he was doing? Uh, Rafa continental. Right. Yeah. yeah he and is go uh, yonder or something else, right? Like yep, yonder journal. Um, okay. that's so funny when you said that. Cause like, I, I was like, does he know who 
right. Daniel is. I mean, he's basically the godfather of all adventure cycling. You know, I did, um, obviously I didn't. No, did, he had no <laughs> I wasn't idea. Like, I wasn't standing. He's in the presence of. Right. I wasn't fishing or like you right, know, right. trying to be a dick or <laughs> no. like, hey man, who, so who are you? No, no, I don't. I didn't get that vibe at all. I was just like. Uh, he just, does he realize he came to the exact right place at right. the exact right time? Cause, um, yeah, no, Daniel is, um, I don't feel at all qualified to talk about Daniel's brain. Cause it's probably the most like crazy, beautiful, amazing brain, um, you could ever encounter. Cause he's so smart. Um, and so creative, but yeah, he developed the Rafa continental. I mean, I believe he literally like brought you know, the word epic into the world of cycling. Yeah. For sure into the world of cycling, maybe into the world. Um, Cause he's done, you know, bikepacking adventures, you know, before there was bikepacking bags, you know, he was lashing stuff to his bike, going over the Andes in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, he tells this crazy story <laughs> where he, so one of his, so he had this project with Specialized called Dead Reckoning. And so they just went and put themselves out on these just like epic bikepacking adventures. Um, and so one was so epic that- Just to create drama. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what really what the, I don't know if it was like a, like a type of situation where we, like he felt like a need to like send something, like, you know, like a first ascent of something. I oh, think he gotcha. just wanted to maybe see how far, like, or where they could get bikes to or something. But the one that, I think the last one that they went on is just a, it, I'll never do the story justice, but the real plan was that they had, um, they're in New Zealand, they're going to go up over these mountains. And at the end, um, they had like hella dropped in, a like a raft and they were going to like, like shoot like kind of this, like out of the backside of these mountains, just raft out of there, um, from this like pre pre dropped raft with their bikes. Right. So that, I mean, that in itself is like way different than pinning on numbers. I mean, you yeah. like that's just a different world, right? Where you're on like sat phones and you're like, oh, there's going to be a drop for a raft. And by the time we get over these mountains. So anyways, the whole story kind of accumulated where like uh, these rivers were in this rainstorm were starting to get bigger and bigger. It's kind of they made their way up this valley to the point where, you know, they on, they literally felt like, you know, there's a chance of, you know, dying out here because like they're going to get swept away. Um, they're, they're sleeping under these tarps, the ground's moving beneath them and there's just no way, uh, that they, they can make it. And so he tells a story where like, cause like trying to put a budget together, like that's pretty hard to do, but yeah. then, um, they get to the point where they're pinned down and I'm not sure if they, like the raft never made it cause they got the weeks wrong. I think oh, like, no. what <laughs> like, they got the day wrong for the raft drop exactly so that they had to get evacuated. And so there's a, there's a real famous like picture. They're on the sat phone and the helicopter's coming um, in the Dead Reckoning project. And, and Daniel tells a story. He's like, well, that was our budget because I think the flight out for them was like 10K to oh, get off God. that mountain. You know, I mean, just like such a bummer. So like, that was a $10,000 phone call that they had to make. <laughs> it was some ridiculous number. So they couldn't put out much of a like a final story with it. Cause it was all, the budget was all, but well, budget was gone. I yeah. mean, so like any, I think any, you know, money, like, you know, you know, projects like that, you're just trying to like make some money to survive. Right. Sure. You know? Sure. Um, but, um, yeah, th- that was just evaporated instantly in one phone call. So yeah. So Daniel himself is like the OG of backpack or bike packing. So you've gone to Europe with, when he was doing work with manual for speed and yep. done like, what did you guys do when you were there, you were covering, 
the spring only, classics. Only road racing? Yeah, only road racing. Yep, yeah. yep. So we did... All the, what'd you say? All the spring classics? All the spring classics. Okay. So uh, I really first met Daniel at Amstel Gold. Um, Separately? Like you were there for separate projects? No, no. I was flying in with Castelli yeah. um, just to kind of hang because they, they rent like this really beautiful house in Ghent, uh, Belgium. Yeah. And so that's kind of where Manual for Speed operates out of. So I was just like, I got some time. I'm going to fly over there. And I had always been a big fan of Manual for Speed. I think, you know, they're pretty groundbreaking, or Daniel and Emmy. And I mean, pretty, yeah, they were groundbreaking. There's just, yeah, history will reflect well upon those two because they're just, what they did for the cycling world is changing. They, they were disruptors. But, anyways, I got to hang out with them. And so I had fly, flown in through Iceland to there, and I got laid over. Late, like the fl- anyways, the flight was delayed, so I got in the day late. And so Daniel's like, hey, you want to go do Amstel Gold? I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure, right? Because the way the sportives kind of set up is you get to, the everyday Joe just gets to go ride those courses the day before the professionals do. So Amstel and Roubaix and uh, Flanders um, are, all, are all there. And I was like, yeah, great. This would be awesome. And I'll, I only knew Daniel as like really fat Daniel. But, but he had gotten real fit by that point, and he's real fit now. I'm obsessed with it. And so I was like, yeah, I can for sure hang. I mean, my legs are tired. I just came off a plane. You sent me a picture yeah, of fat right. Daniel. Fat, fat Daniel, right? <laughs> um, but he is super fit Daniel now. And so, um, yeah, I was like right off the plane. But like a chance to go ride Amstel Gold is amazing. And uh, it was raining, um, and like we had no idea what we were doing, right? And so, so you're riding not – you're not – Filming, you're not. No, this is just like the first time I ever okay. met Daniel. Like, let's oh, go yeah. for a ride. Let's do Amstel Gold together. Right. Um, all I have is an apple and a <laughs> bottle of water, and I had just gotten off the plane, so I built up my bike real quick. We drove to the start. We had no idea where it was, and I just remember, you know, like the the European towns, the roads are all windy, and so we were just trying to find people that we could follow to the start line because we had no idea where it was. And I remember we caught on to this, like, like just this, like these dudes were raging, like this pace line just raging europeans take their sportives real seriously mm. and we got on the wheel of these like six dudes and they were just mocking it and i remember just sitting on my sitting on their wheel crushing it and we were like jumping over like curbs and trying to weave our way on sidewalks around traffic just crushing it and i remember daniel behind me going <laughs> just said he just said ah the pace is good the spray off your wheels good i feel super safe <laughs> just Anytime I'm in a situation that's just so sketchy, I always say, yeah, pace is good, spray off your wheels good, feel super safe. Anyways, so we went on just to crush Amstel Gold the rest of the day on an apple and a half a bottle of water. And then we were just full hobo tech. Like I had a flannel shirt on, a Gore-Tex jacket, like a wool cap, because we were so underprepared. We thought it was going to be beautiful. But anyways, that's kind of like how he and I became bros. You thought it was going to be beautiful in Belgium? That was wrong. Hmm. That was obviously my first time there, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's how Daniel and I became uh, buddies. And then uh, I've been over there, I think, two or three times covering the Spring Classic since then with him. Yeah. Yep, so we've, we've ridden Roubaix together. We've ridden Flanders together. He crushed me on Roubaix because he can just power over the cobbles. Um, but I, he'll, he'll tell, he'll, I think he'll say I, I had him in Flanders. Yeah. Like I, I think he would crush me now, but yeah. So is that how it always worked? Like you guys would go ride the sportif the day before, and then you would be cover. on the media moto, or how would how would you guys cover yeah. the actual event? So to cover cover the event, we would do rider interviews bef- the week of. Yeah, you know, so we could go maybe out and do a recon, 
um, or go uh, talk to the, the directors, yeah. and they would usually have somebody that would, we'd go to their hotel and these crappy little Belgium hotels where the teams were and just interview riders. Yeah. And then the of day of the event, we would be um, in like a media car that oh. was piloted by Daniel. Um, he drove? He drove. And oh, that's Jesus. the scariest thing I've ever done in my life is chasing uh, Roubaix with Daniel driving. 100% the scariest thing. No question that was the scariest thing I've ever done. And it, it was so much scary because I think the second or third year my wife was over there. I was like, you should go with us. It's going to be great. <laughs> and um, like a third of the way into the race, I was like, this is the worst thing I could do as a husband. Cause like, <laughs> she played it cool, but I'm sure she was so scared. So so scared. What did you like, I, I felt bad to myself. I was like, what kind of danger, what kind of harm like did I put her in? Like, What kind of harm's way did I just put my wife in? It was so, I mean, it is frightening. Yeah. Cause well, like, I mean, I guess rules... if the best thing about that is that it's closed roads. No. Right? No, 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 no. Cause you're, you're operating outside of the race envelopes. So you're racing around leapfrogging, oh. trying to get ahead. So you'll come up. So you're not following in the race and like going up to chase one and nope. Wow. No. Okay. So those roads are all shut down. Even the motos can't get through. You see the motos, they're yeah. out in the fields going mm -hmm. through like farm fields trying mm -hmm. to get ahead. So you're basically going around and I remember, can we swear? Oh yeah. Okay. So we ended up, <laughs> this is another classic Danielism. We ended up like racing and we thought we were just ahead of the, the group, but we knew we were behind it because we saw all the, um, the team cars coming back because the team cars are leapfrogging with you. Because it's a lap format too, right? Like no. Which one? Roubaix. Oh, gotcha. Roubaix, you're yeah, just kind of yeah. like yeah. just bouncing around. You're trying to get to all the famous Sorry, I sectors. Sorry, we were talking about Flanders. No, no. Yeah. Well, those are like weird wormholes because yeah. it comes in and then they just kind of wind around. And I just remember like we ran up on Astana and they're like just on the horn at us. And we're like, <laughs> like you know, we're head to head with Astana and they want to get out to get their team wheels. And so we have to put it like in reverse for like 6K because it's just lined with pedestrians and cars and i just remember daniel just like just drilling it and you can start to you know, smell the transmission it's just burning up ever since then if anything's really just horrible we're like this sucks because he i just remember him like looking at the astana's just pissed off as he could be at the astana team car behind us trying not to kill anybody just in reverse for like 6k wow yeah so it was so scary and then we came around the corner and there's like you'll see a car just like it just like a rallied over somebody's hood and like was flipped over on top of another car. I mean, there's just like a, a destruction in the yeah. wake of people. I, like I would never go outside um, during one of those races because it's so dangerous. People yeah. are just flying around at a million miles an hour. Just trying to see. Just trying, just to, trying to see it. Yep. Yeah. Fans, media, team cars, just insane. Well, I love going back and looking at some of the Mano for Speed stuff, like some of the... Um, I don't know, just go down these wormholes of, 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 you know, media or coverage of, of these different, and I'm sure there's like, like anything, there's so much that didn't make it, you know, so much. That, yeah. Um, it's just, it was a really cool and I don't, I mean, it's, it's exists still, but it's not, I think it exists in antiquity now. Yeah. You know, um, it's just a snapshot in like five years of time of that covered professional cycling in a way that never had been done. Yeah. You know, Daniel's still out there actively working, yeah. but Daniel for speed itself is, is, is there, but yeah, you know, it's just this look at cycling that was just beautiful and groundbreaking. It was amazing. Yeah. And I don't know if you could recreate it, you know, I don't think it, you could, I think if you tried, it would be, it'd be, it'd be biting on it too hard. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it was so unique, but yeah, I mean, those guys, yeah, they, they did it right. Well, I've just seen like some of the photos that you have at your house, just, you know, up 
you know, on the walls of some of those places, not like the, the gritty, like, you know, in the riders, you know, get in the riders as they come by and those kind of like in the Peloton photos, but the, just some of the most like beautiful places that you've been. So, you know, I think that you're in this unique place that your profession has taken you all over the world, you know, and I'm, I'm fortunate as well to be in a yeah. similar place. Like I've seen a lot of the U S and a lot of the world that I would never have seen if I wasn't a bike racer, you know, or, right. or traveling around and doing these races. But, um, you know, I think that it's, um, it's maybe glamorous, you know, to someone looking from the outside, but I think it's also, there's a lot of work into it, you know, like so hard. Yeah. It's funny. Like people talk to me about that and I feel super privileged because I've seen, I've had experiences that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people haven't, haven't had, or maybe won't have, or if they, hopefully they do have, but, um, it's funny cause you guys, I think about when I was listening to you talk to, um, the gravel lot guys about cross racing, mm-hmm. right? Like there's nothing fun about it. It's just fulfilling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that's, like what this kind of, you know, documentary filmmaking life is. It's, it's so hard. Like I, I keep this, you know, uh, record of, I take a photo of these beds I sleep in. Mm-hmm. I just have this, I flip back through them. I'm like, these are horrible. I mean, I was freezing that night or whatever, yeah. you know, I mean, they're just, it's not easy. And, uh, but it is fulfilling. Sure. Super fulfilling being able to kind of share these stories of the, of the world or just nothing like it, but it's not easy. Not well, it's like a means to an end uh, in some ways, right? Like you, one, you're putting yourself in these, in these situations that are not necessarily comfortable because that's where the action is happening. You know, like you could maybe do the same trip in like a more bougie hotel or, or, you know, fancier place to stay, but that's not where some of the stories are being told. Right. You know, well then you, I think you do miss out on the authenticity. Right. You know, um, cause I, so I, I do a couple projects where I've been like embedded with people. Um, then I've done some projects kind of from the outside, you know, uh, looking in and I really just kind of enjoy the embedded ones, you know, where you're mm-hmm. living it. Cause then the um, experience that comes out of that is just more authentic. Your interpretation of the story is more authentic. You know? I mean, is that what you would say is your, your biggest, I guess, for lack of a better word, your biggest why, like the why you, you feel like it's so like you've, you've had front row seat to so many of these amazing stories, right? Like that people, even from watching the film, aren't going to get a complete understanding of the story that's being told. Right. And th- then it's kind of like up to your creativity and your, um, devices to be able to put that story out there. But what is it about that, that, that drives you to sign up for the next one, you know, to, or to, mm. or, or is there like a, this draw that is, forces you to say, I got to tell this story. That's an interesting question. Uh, so I think some people are drawn to like the adventure themselves, like inherently drawn to the adventure. I, I think I'm inherently so like, I think there's two things, there's two factors at play there, right? One, I think my soul is completely aligned with just narrative work. Like I have to do it. Like there's no way I can't do it. Um, but then there's a part of me that sees the value in those stories. 
Um, and that's like the Iceland, the shared territory film is, I think, an example of that in the sense that um, we're already so disconnected in this world that it's super important that we are able to connect with other people at the at, at the at the level that I've met people in Iceland. Mm-hmm. You know, if you mm-hmm. want to just kind of pick out an example. So if you watch that film, um, had even if you've never been to Iceland, you'd be like, oh, I know I know that person in a way that I don't think I would have otherwise, right? And so the more connections we can kind of foster and build, like it's, I think we're going to maybe have a like a chance at turning this around, you know? Because mm-hmm. I think. You know the the world is just it's just inherently disconnected, and if the more disconnected we are, the more divided we are. But if we can kind of connect at that at that level, you know, we can look at different ways to uh, allocate resources, look at different ways that we can uh, help one another, um, find different ways um, to share uh, the resources that you know that we do have. And so that's kind of the only way I feel like we're gonna maybe kind of get out of the shitstorm that we've kind of created for ourselves. So I have. You know, I can't say it's completely altruistic because I feel like it's what my body needs to do and what my spirit needs to do. Yeah. But I want to do it in such a way that it connects people rather than divides them. And so that's why I think I do sign up for the next one because I feel like I'm maybe having some impact on somewhere, although small, you know, but hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that your ability to show that humanity part of it that people can relate to and just like, yeah, essentially we are all the same, right? Like whether you're on whatever plot of dirt you're standing on, you know, um, we are all, all one, you know, all the same. And, um, yeah, man, I think that's, I I don't know. I felt like it was, um, for us to cross paths and to kind of meet on that scenario, it's not like when the role massive theme came along, it's not something that I would normally say yes to, but the timing worked and I, I did, you know, I did say yes. And, and, and come to find out later, it was like, I was the, the backup Remy. So, um, <laughs> you were the stunt beard. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I think, I feel like there's our, our paths crossing, you know, was for a reason. And yeah. so then, to me to have the honor to be able to work with you on this, on the unknown country project and didn't just to be able to get to know you as a person and, um, have you try to educate me on how much I don't know about guitars and, um, or bike packing or bike. Packing. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I have great resources now. So great. You got the best two best guitar um, guitar. Well, one best guitar, great resource. There's a lot of others. And then bike packing. There's two of us. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's, um, what you're doing is amazing. You're doing some great stuff and, um, you know, if you haven't seen the shared territory film, let people know where they can find that easily. Uh, probably the easiest way is ubic. Seems like the Instagram is ubiquitous, so if yeah. you just find us at shared territory, mm-hmm. um, there you'll find everything. You'll the find link a link to, to the film. There. Yep. Okay. And so we're gearing up for our second one, which will be in August. Yeah. We're going to film it in August, but it won't be out until fall of 2020. Going so. back to Iceland? No, no. We're um, going to uh, the Inca Road from Lake Titicaca through the Andes to Cusco, Peru, kind of retracing the origins of the Inca empire yeah. and documenting um, the, I think one of the last remaining pastoral societies in the world. So wow. that's what we're going to explore. You and Remy. Next. 
Yep. Okay. And I think maybe that's something we didn't talk about, but you guys filmed that other than Ian was helping you for a portion of that. Yep. Um, that nine days across Iceland. So North and North to South across yep. Iceland took you nine days. Yes. Um, and you guys filmed that all yourselves. All ourselves, yeah. We carried all, pretty much all our production equipment. Um, Ian from Envy, who's a good friend of ours, a super special human being, he was with us on the north, uh, dropped us off, and then went around the island and picked us up on the south. And during that time, got two tattoos. Oh, I didn't so, know that. No, <laughs> yeah, so the t- amount of time it takes you to ride across Iceland, you can get tattoo- two tattoos. And drive around. And, and drive around, edge. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah, so that's where we're, we're going to head back. Oh, cool. Head back, yeah. So the, the plan with shared territory is that it's going to be an annual event. Yeah. Uh, with uh, this last year we did, I think eight screenings mm-hmm. around the country, and this next year we're going to try to do ten. Oh, cool. So yeah, look for it, and then yeah, yeah follow us on the Instagram is probably the best Great. way to do it. Yeah. Well, if you need a stand-in beard for stunt beard, <laughs> any yeah, of these any of those, right? shared territories, <laughs> you let me know. Yeah. I'd have to grow mine out. It's a little tight right now. It's a little tight right yeah. now. Um, well, cool, Justin. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And um, dude, this is great. Yeah. I su- well, one, I appreciate having me on the show, but then also two, like, let me be part of Unknown Country. Like yeah. that was a that was like a really special time. Like, definitely broke down out there. It was good. Yeah, I'm really proud of the way that turned out, and and just what we collectively put together. I'm not taking much credit for it, honestly, because I want uh, people to know that it was it was mostly you and not me. I just was, you know, I, out in the right place at the right time. It was great. Um, I don't know. I'm really proud of that film. Like really proud of it. So yeah. Well, everybody that said anything to me about it, and maybe it's because you know people are telling me that, um, but everybody's just blown away, and they wish it was longer and all these things. But um, as a filmmaker, you want them to want more than less, right? Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Like walk out because it's too damn long. Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. There's a movie called Cream Master. If you want to walk out of, go check it out. Bjork's husband did it. Korea. Cream Master. Cream Master. Yeah. There's five of them. Oh. I walked out like 15 minutes to the first one. (laughs) Too art housey for me. (laughs) so cool all right man well thanks yeah thanks a lot man